the events of the last few days have taken me in a different direction, and that's going to be reflected in everything I talk about this morning. But as some of you probably know, Nina, who's been in the hospital for the last week, uh, and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with her, Thursday had exploratory surgery, and they found out that it's ovarian cancer. And uh, not only is it ovarian cancer, but it's already at stage four. So it's metastasized across her abdomen. And as devastating as this news is, I want to try to balance that with the fact that, um, first of all, this is Nina we're talking about. And she has still that effervescent hope. She also has one of the best doctors, um, not only in the nation, but I think internationally as well. This doctor has this reputation and an entire team um, from Hogue that has taken her on. And uh, that, that, uh, that doctor and one of his lead doctors met with her yesterday. And uh, they've got a treatment plan. It's going to be seven months. It's going to involve three rounds of chemotherapy. It's going to involve surgery uh, after two rounds of, of chemotherapy um, to get as much of the masses out that they can. And then there'll be a third round of chemo that's supposed to mop everything up. So nobody is giving up on this, least of all Nina and Angelo and all of us. And so, as, as I said, as out of left field as this came, because this is Nina. I mean, she, she eats like, I was going to say Jack LaLanne, but nobody will know who that is around here. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but she eats so healthily. She, she exercises, and she, everything about her has been healthy. She looks 15 at least years younger than she actually is. If I told you how old she was, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, and so this is just not fair. It's absolutely not fair. And um, so we're all reeling from this, and, um, but we're all supporting her. And Nina has asked you know, that, that she would love to hear from anyone who would, that would like to communicate with her. But please don't call right now, because uh, telephone calls are going to be overwhelming. But you can text. And Marion has put together a Facebook group um, that already has 50 or 60 members in it just in the last 24 hours. And you can join that as well. And that's a great place to just post things. And, and she would just love to see that, um, that connection and that encouragement continue to come up. The group is called Team Nina. Team Nina. Okay. And so you can find it that way. Um, but she is, she's all about the fight right now. And, and yet, at the same time, you know, she's going through what she's going through and her family is going through it with her. And just to, you know, I certainly don't want this to sound like a eulogy, but there's some reminiscence here. And, and just to place her in importance in our community and in my life and Marion's life, uh, I've been basically joined at the hip with Nina for over 12 years now. And uh, when we landed over here at this other space, and, and Tuesday nights was our main um, recovery gathering. We had clients, you know, males and females coming from all over South County and from treatment centers. And one of them was Pack Hills, where Nina was one of the, the therapists. 
And she'd get all these, these uh, it was a men back because she was dealing in the men's house. She'd get these men back after on Wednesday morning just going off about what happened on Tuesday night. And finally she needed to figure it out. So she called me and said, what in the world are you guys doing over there? No, it wasn't like that. She was so impressed with the, what was happening in the men's lives and how they were responding to this connection that she wanted to connect with me. And that began a friendship. And we started an outpatient treatment center, um, but she was still working full-time, and without her really at the helm, it didn't work out so well. But uh, we closed that, and a year later, we opened Encompass, and that's been going still to this day. We started a second inpatient um, treatment center and a detox center, ran that for about four years until we it just... With uh, insurance companies uh, making changes, we couldn't compete anymore. She's been a, a stalwart part of the effect for this entire time. She's one of our board members, and she does a heck of a lot more than you would ever think behind the scenes. You know, she's the one who is kind of our interior decorator and, and makes a lot of the choices and, and uh, you know, comes up with ideas. Some of them I'm not too thrilled with, but the other ones are really good. But... Um, she is just one of those people that is just, uh, she's the ever-ready bunny. You know, She's got this energy. She's got this drive. She's all about Zumba and dancing. She's an extrovert to beat the band. You know, She calls this the dancing corner now. So you two were supposed to have been dancing, but I didn't see anything going on over there. And, uh, and she's already talking about coming back. She wants to She's keeping her job. She's hoping that she'll be able to get back on, you know, Zoom calls and doing the things that she was doing. And we'll have to just see how the chemo affects her because her first round is supposed to start on Wednesday. So um, we're getting right into it here. So um, it's just I, I I was working at I was doing a counseling session at the hospital and I got the call the texts back and it just floored me. I mean, what, what do you what do you do? I, I saw the reaction of some of you and I just said it just now. It's just, what do you do with a, a diagnosis like that? How do you handle it? How is she handling it? Well, she's handling it like Nina. Uh, and so when you talk to her on the phone, she just sounds like she always does. Um, but she broke down a few times, of course, and Marion was with her on Friday night and she broke down there. Um, I got up, I woke up Saturday morning at about 3.30 a.m. and couldn't get back to sleep and Nina was on my mind and so I thought I, I needed to look up stage four. You know, I know generally what it's about but I wanted to get more details what was going on as I'm going on my phone and looking this stuff up. In comes a text from Nina from her hospital room and so we're texting back and forth a little bit and then she finally says, well, can, are you still up? Can we talk? So uh, I head downstairs so I'm not bothering Marion but um, talk to her about till about 5.30 in the morning. And, uh, you know, after I hung up with her, you know, I'm thinking, what is she thinking about in the dark hours? What is she thinking about, you know, facing a diagnosis like this? And I know some of the things that, that she's thinking about. Think about it. What would you be thinking about at a time like this? I mean, I know that she's thinking about her children, especially. She's thinking about her family. She's thinking about Angelo. She's thinking about all the people in her life. She's thinking about you. She's thinking about all of us at the same time. You know, thinking about the things that she's involved in and people that she loves. And obviously, she's thinking about getting her affairs in order. So there's been a certain amount of that. And we talked about some of those issues as well. But beyond the relationships, beyond the, the, the functional issues, what would she be thinking about? What would we all be thinking about? 
And yes, you know, it's the unsinkable Nina, right? The optimist, the extrovert, and all of that. And she's hopeful, but there's got to be this strange balance going on in her mind right now, I would imagine. And full of fight, she told me, hey, I'm planning to live until 93. I'm going to die at 93. That's her plan, right? So she's full of fight and she's full of optimism and hope. But also she needs to admit the possibility, right? The possibility of death and to prepare for it at the same time. And in that admission, in that immediacy, in the face of a diagnosis like this, what thoughts are arising in her mind? And this is what has been occupying me for the last few days as well. You know, those deeper thoughts, the ones that we kind of hold at bay, the ones that are always there in the periphery, but they don't really land usually until there's times like these, until something happens. And I remember, and I think I told you um, times before, there were two nights that I woke up in the middle of the night. What is it about 3.30 in the morning? I don't know. But I wake up at 3.30 in the morning with pain across my chest going down my left arm. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, is, is this the burrito I had for dinner? Or, you know, what is this? And I'm thinking, okay, do I, do, I call, do I wake Marion up? Do I call anybody? What do I do here? And, and thinking about all these things. And then the second time it happened, it was more severe. And so I got up, and, and I was kind of trying to walk it off and, and thinking, okay, is it 911 time? What do I do? And uh, it occurred to me that I wanted my kids to know how much I loved them. And I especially wanted my two daughters to know because they weren't living with me at that time, and they're still not living with us. And so I texted them. You know, I didn't tell them, hey, I'm having a heart attack, but I just told them, I love you, and I'm so proud of you. I just wanted them to know that just in case. And, of course, it passed, and it went down the other side. But it's amazing what goes through your mind at a time like that. Because, as I say, we hold these things at arm's length. And then all of a sudden, something comes right up and we're faced with this. We're faced with this mortality. I can say, and I have said, and I believe right now that I'm not afraid of death. But you never really know until you're put in that position when it's right there in front of you. What it is that you will feel. What it is that's going on. I was thinking of everything that I'd be leaving behind. I was thinking of Marion and, and my kids and you all and the unfinished work that I think that I would like to be doing. And of course, I wanted my kids to know that I loved them. But here was a surprise for me. I realized that I'm not ready to go yet. I'm just not ready. I don't want to. There's just too much stuff that I would have left to do. And that didn't come so clear. You know, sometimes life just kind of beats you down. And you think, man, I just want to lie down and take a break. You know, Sometimes we, we talk about, I'll get my rest when I take my dirt nap. You know, We say things like that. But it's like when it's really there, it's like, yeah, surprise, I'm not ready. But at the same time, I wasn't panicked about it either. I wasn't freaking out. I was kind of weirdly observing myself in the situation. I remember thinking that. I'm watching myself go through this, thinking these things, and striking the strange balance that I was talking about between thinking, okay, well, this is going to pass, and thinking, I need to admit that, that this might be the moment, right? And so these last two days, I've been wondering, is Nina thinking these deeper things? Is she thinking about all this actually intentionally? I, I, I'm just, I haven't had a chance to ask her, and of course, she's supposed to be listening right now, but I'm wondering if she's thinking at times like this 
of different things. And I spent a lot of time over my life earlier on wondering about what the next life is going to be like. You know, what is it about? How does it work? What's all these things going on? I don't do much of that anymore. You know, I have finally accepted that there are things that I can't know. And no matter how much we talk about the next life, we can't know anything about it. We don't know anything about it. And the people who say that they do, you know, maybe they've had some sort of experience or maybe they're selling something, I don't know. But we can't know about these things. And I don't imagine any more that I do, even though I can't help wanting more information. I've finally gotten more comfortable with uncertainty. I've finally gotten more comfortable with the unknown. And so I don't ask these questions so much. But I'll tell you what, every time a friend of mine passes, first thing I think of, what are they doing now? What are they doing right now? You know, are they wheeling over galaxies somewhere? Are they talking with their family, historical figures? What do you get to do in this other dimension? And it's just so fascinating and hopeful that all these things are possible, that anything is possible. What are they doing right now? I'm convinced that death is not the end of human existence. But the question remains is how do we continue? Not that we continue. I'm convinced of that. How do we continue? Will each one of us get to continue known as we are known right now, somehow? That I'll know you and you'll know me in the next life? Do we return like a a drop to the ocean in terms of our consciousness? I don't like that one as much. But how do we continue? These are the questions that really keep us up at night. These are the questions that you start to think about at times like these, at least I do. I remember C.S. Lewis at the end of his life, at the end of his career, after decades of writing everything that he wrote, in a letter that he wrote, he said, in describing everything that he had written, everything that he had posited throughout his life, he said, they're only guesses, just guesses. If they're not true, something better will be. That's about the best that we can say. If our God really is who Jesus says he is, if our God is this God of absolute love, then it's always going to be good. We can't imagine it, and we can't imagine how it works, but we don't need to worry. Our guesses, if they're not true, something better will be. And I think that's the best thing that we can do, is just let it go. Lean into the uncertainty. Find that place of trust in our vulnerability. Find that place of trust in our uncertainty that allows us to continue to live our lives. You know, there's a, a movie called Jackie that was about Jacqueline Kennedy in the the first few weeks after the assassination and how she dealt with things. And it was, a, it was a good movie all the way around, but there was one scene that just riveted me the first time I saw it. And I've watched it on YouTube dozens of times since, and I watched it again last night. But I love that scene so much, and it's a scene where Jackie is counseling with a, a priest, you know, as a good Catholic would, um, through this whole period. But the last scene with the priest that she has... They're sitting on a bench with a secret service out in the, you know, in the background there. And the priest asks, why are you really here? And she says, I needed someone to talk to. He says, you've told me that every night you pray to die, that you're no good for your children anymore, that you just want to be with your husband. Yet, 
I'm not burying you today. And then he takes a beat and he stops. And the violin music starts. And he says, there comes a time in man's search for meaning that you realize there are no answers. And when you come to that horrible, unavoidable conclusion, you either accept it or you kill yourself. Or you just stop searching. And he takes another beat. And he says, I have lived a blessed life. Yet every night when I climb into bed and turn out the lights and stare into the darkness, I wonder, is this all there is? And she's startled. You wonder? Every soul on this planet does. Yet the next morning, you wake up and make up the coffee. Why do we bother, she says. He says, because you do. You did this morning. You're going to do it tomorrow. But God, in his infinite wisdom, has made it just enough for us. That's brilliant. That's as brilliant as it gets. We wake up in the morning and make up the coffee. And as he's saying this, the scene cuts to her with her two small children at the seashore running and squealing. And that moment, if we allow it, is just enough for us. That's the moment. That's it. That's all we get. And this was made so much more poignant when I learned that the great John Hurt, the actor John Hurt, who was playing the priest, he was only weeks from his own death. He had learned that he had cancer, but decided to continue working. This was his last role. This was his last scene. What was going through his mind as he was reciting these words? Because his performance is absolutely brilliant. It's just this, he just became it, of course. Good actors do that. But how much more for him were these words resonating with him as he was dealing with the questions that he was dealing with at times like these? That's it. This moment. Right now, this moment we have right now in this room is all we have. If we can't find meaning here and now, why do we think that we're going to find it there and then? We keep doing that, trying to leapfrog over the moments of our lives because they seem, what, insignificant? because they don't seem to carry any meaning, but there will be meaning later when this happens, when that happens, when I die, when, when I, I meet the Lord face to face. If we can't find meaning here in this moment, why do we think we'll see it then and there? The whole point of this life is to learn to treasure this one and only moment. Because there are no other moments. This is it, folks. Here in this room, looking at the faces that we're looking at, this is all we have. This is all that exists. Can we just pause on that for a second and just try to drive that home? Because I know I've said it dozens of times, but to really try to let it sink in, what does that really mean? There is no other moment than this moment that we're sharing right now. This is all there is. All of creation, all of time, are here, right now. This is it. Or at least we can say, all that we can ever experience of creation and time is here and now. This is it. This is all we have. Anything outside of this shared moment, right? That doesn't exist for us. 
If we're thinking about it, then we're not anywhere. We're not there. We're not here. And we're not engaged and involved in the only moment that exists. Maybe any other moment doesn't exist at all. How would we know? And for those people who are having those other moments someplace else that they may tell us about later, we don't exist for them either. Not here. Not now. And these persons that are with us are the only persons who exist for us. There aren't any others. Not now. In this room, we are the most important people in our lives, regardless of who's not here right now. Right now. Do we have to wait to see the possibility of losing someone to finally understand and feel the value of that person in our lives? Is that what it needs to come down to? Is it because we imagine that there are so many moments left, so many people in the world that we don't value them right here and right now? Is it really just supply and demand? Is that what this is all about? You know? But in reality, there is only this one moment. No other moment exists. And whichever person is in our path right now in this moment is the only person that exists. And when our full awareness, when our full presence is enclosing this one moment, enclosing the people in them, everything begins to change in our lives. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us over and over again. Do we have to wait for times like these to even have a moment of clarity that we're going to forget about in the next moment, in the next 24 hours, when the distractions of life come and carry us back away again. Nina's family right now is experiencing a closeness, an intensity that they probably haven't had in quite some time. Nina was talking to about it. Yesterday was all about family. Sisters flew in, the, 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 the kids were there, and she said it was just amazing. Do we have to wait for times like these to have that kind of intensity, to have that kind of closeness? I remember times over 12 years when Nina and I really got on each other's nerves. Hey, you know what? It's going to happen. If you haven't fought with someone, you just don't know them well enough, right? But there was no irritation this week. I can certainly tell you that. It's interesting how it works, but we've got to be aware of what's at issue how our human nature works and work against it so that we're not waiting until times like these. We can see the value of each moment and we can see and feel the intensity of it as well. Why do we wait till the perception of moments dwindles before we can see how precious they are? Yes, we're distracted. And we allow urgencies in life to masquerade as important things in life. I don't know if you've heard this before. Urgencies. Because what is urgent is not necessarily important. It's just urgent, and usually arbitrarily so, because somebody attached a deadline to it. Now it's urgent. Now it takes all our focus. But the important things in life usually don't appear as urgent because they're open-ended, right? because there are no deadlines attached to them. Think about your relationships. Think about your prayer time. Absolutely important. 
the most important things that we can do in life, and yet they're not urgent. So how easy is it to keep pushing them down another page on the day planner, pushing them down and kicking them down the road because they're not urgent? We get so involved and so distracted by the urgencies of life that we forget about what's really important. And secondly, we don't want to think about uncertainty, do we? We don't want to think about vulnerability. We don't want to think about loss. And there's nothing more uncertain or vulnerable than death. So we really don't want to think about that until times like these force us to. But how would our lives be changed if we didn't wait for times like these? But we leaned into the uncertainty and we leaned into the fear to see what is really there. Because what are we really running from when it comes right down to it? It's like running from a monster in a dream. You ever have one of those dreams? Something's chasing you and you're just running and running and running. You're afraid to even look back. You just keep running. And in that dream, it's just as real as if it were waking life because the dreamer doesn't know the difference, right? We're running and running. But what we're running from is our, just our own perception. It's our own personification of our fears themselves. That's what we're running from. And if we just realized it's only a dream, there's nothing that can hurt us in it, we could just stop, turn, face that thing, fade to white. We're out of it. But we don't know. We stay inside the bubble of our fears and our perceptions. And we keep running. Well, spending time in silence, spending time in solitude, spending time in that kind of contemplative prayer that we're always talking about is like waking from a dream. It's like waking up inside the dream, waking up inside your waking moments, realizing that our fears are merely dreamscape in the scheme of things. That if our God is who Jesus says he is, if our God really is this degreeless love, then there is nothing to fear. And in that love, we can put down the fear enough so that we can push into the uncertainty and we can wake up from the nightmare, wake up from the dream and turn and face whatever it is. Let it fade to white and move on. And we can begin to see the precious value of our moments we can allow the most insignificant of our moments to become profound because we find presence in them, because we immerse our presence in them, and we find the connection that is possible in every single moment. Routine tasks can take on new meaning. People we see every single day no longer taken for granted. And there's no more wasted time. Every moment is profound because we're intently and consciously aware. And when loss occurs in our lives, as it must, as it's going to, as it has to in this life, we'll have the grief, but we won't have the regret in the grief that we didn't have the connection or value what is now being taken away. Decades ago, I came across some writing that helped me in my own debilitating fears because I was a ball of confusion back in the day. And I read something that really clicked with me and got me thinking in new directions. And 
I wanted to take some time, this, this will be what we do just at the end of this, to read you a couple of pages. And it's Thomas Merton. Merton was one of the great influencers of my life. And if you know Thomas Merton, he was just a guy growing up in New York and a worldly guy at that. But there was always this pull on his life, always something that he knew he needed to do. And finally, in the early 40s, he realized what it was. It was to join the Trappist monastery, to become a monk, to become a priest, and to move into cloister, not to just do this in situ, in the, in the world, but to actually retreat from it. And his autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, was a game changer in the 40s. Returning veterans from World War II who had no sense of place and didn't know how to reintegrate into society actually, you know, read this book and found a new sense of purpose. They also flooded the abbey at Gethsemane in northern Kentucky where, where Thomas Merton was. And Merton actually regretted that. He said, you know, this was the place of silence. You know, now it's like Disneyland. He didn't say Disneyland, but, you know, you get the idea. All these people were coming because they wanted to try to find what Merton had found himself. Merton is credited with being the, the one true American spiritual master who returned con contemplation to us. It was lost. But Merton was one of those voices 60 years ago to start talking about it again, to bring it back into consciousness and into favor. And then a lot of other people picked up the torch from him. And so here he is, 11 years into his monastic life. He's now a priest, and he's now a, a leader in the abbey himself. He's also a famous writer. And he's living in a 100-plus-year-old building, 100 years old at that time. It was uh, built by French Trappist monks back before the Civil War. And so every night what they would have is one monk who was the fireman. One monk had to do the fire watch and had to go through the entire monastery as everyone was going to sleep to make sure that no exposed wiring or nothing was kindling and nothing could catch fire because this thing would just go up like a Roman candle. And it was just all wood and timber and old. And so on July 4th in 1952, he was the one who was elected as the fireman. He was the one who had to go through and make sure that the abbey was safe for the night. And he wrote as an epilogue to his journal, The Sign of Jonas, uh, that was published the next year, what he called Firewatch. And it was the story just, and it's often been called a prose poem. It's just beautiful in, its, in the writing of it. The story of him going through the abbey all by himself at night, in the sweltering heat. And if you've ever been in Kentucky in the summer, oh my gosh, the heat, the humidity, the bugs, big as helicopters, it's amazing. But here he was going through this. And there, it's, it's an, kind of an allegory of sense. It's a metaphor. It's the shape of the journey that we always talk about, the descent to the ascent. He starts in the cellar, and he moves upward through the floors, and then finally ends up in the belfry in the tower of the chapel, looking out over the forest. And it's, it's all of that at the same time. At the same time that he's moving through the spiritual journey, the descent and the ascent, he's also moving through the history of the building itself. He says the oldest were at the cellar and at the belfry, and the newer things were in the floors in between. But he's also going through his own life as a monastic, remembering all the places where he did what he did over the last 11 years as he's going through all these rooms. It's just amazing. If you get a chance to read the whole thing, read it. It's an incredible piece. 
But just to read a little bit, this is where he's getting ready to ascend into the belfry, into the tower at the very end of the fire watch. He writes, Now is the time to get up and go to the tower. Now is the time to meet you, God, where the night is wonderful, where the roof is almost without substance under my feet where the forest opens out under the moon and the living things sing terribly that only the present is eternal and that all things having a past and a future are doomed to pass. Now the business is done. Now I shall ascend to the top of this religious city, leaving its modern history behind. These stairs climb back beyond the Civil War. I make no account of the long lay brother's dormitory where a blue light burns. I hasten to the corridor by the wardrobe. I look out the low windows and know that I am already higher than the trees. Down at the end is the doorway to the attic and the tower. The padlock always makes a great noise. The door swings back on swearing hinges and the night wind, hot and gusty, comes swirling down out of the loft with a smell of ancient rafters and old, hidden, dusty things. You have to watch the third step or your feet go through the boards. From here on, the building has no substance left, but you have to mind your head and bow beneath the beams on which you can see the marks of the axes which our French fathers used to hew them out a hundred years ago. And now the hollowness that rings under my feet measures some 60 feet to the floor of the church. I am over the transept crossing. If I climb around the corner of the dome, I can find a hole once opened by the photographers and peer down into the abyss and flash the light far down upon my stall in choir. I climb the trembling, twisted stair into the belfry. The darkness stirs with a flurry of wings high above me in the glooming engineering that holds the steeple together. Nearer at hand, the old clock ticks in the tower. I flash the light into the mystery which keeps it going and gaze upon the ancient lights and bells. I have seen the fuse box. I have looked in the corners where I think there is some wiring. I am satisfied that there is no fire in this tower which would flare like a great torch and take the whole abbey up with it in 20 minutes. And now my whole being breathes the wind which blows through the belfry and my hand is on the door through which I see the heavens. The door swings out upon a vast sea of darkness and of prayer. Will it come like this, the moment of my death? Will you open a door upon the great forest and set my feet upon a ladder under the moon and take me out among the stars? The roof glistens under my feet this long metal roof facing the forest and the hills, where I stand higher than the treetops and walk upon shining air. Mists of damp heat rise up out of the fields around the sleeping abbey. The whole valley is flooded with moonlight, and I can count the southern hills beyond the water tank and almost number the trees of the forest to the north. Now the huge chorus of living beings rises up out of the world beneath my feet, life singing in the watercourses, throbbing in the creeks and the fields and the trees, choirs of millions and millions of jumping and flying and creeping things, 
And far above me, the cool sky opens upon the frozen distance of the stars. I lay the clock upon the belfry ledge and pray, cross-legged, with my back against the tower, and face the same unanswered question. Lord God of this night, do you see the woods? Do you hear the rumor of their loneliness? Do you behold their secrecy? Do you remember their solitudes? Do you see that my soul is beginning to dissolve like wax within me? Clamabo per diem et non exaudius, et nocte, et non ad incipiatiam mihi. Do you remember the place by the stream? Do you remember the top of the vineyard knob that time in autumn when the train was in the valley? Do you remember McGinty's Hollow? Do you remember the thinly wooded hillside behind Hanekamp's place? Do you remember the time of the forest fire? Do you know what has become of the little poplars we planted in the spring? Do you observe the valley where I marked the trees? There is no leaf that is not in your care. There is no cry that was not heard by you before it was uttered. There is no water in the shales that was not hidden there by your wisdom. There is no concealed spring that was not concealed by you. There is no glen for a lone house that was not planned by you for a lone house, and there is no man for that acre of woods that was not made by you for that acre of woods. But there is greater comfort in the substance of silence than in the answer to a question. Eternity is in the present. Eternity is in the palm of the hand. Eternity is a seed of fire whose sudden roots break barriers that keep my heart from being an abyss. The things of time are in connivance with eternity. The shadows serve you. The bees sing to you before they pass away. The solid hills shall vanish like a worn-out garment. All things change and die and disappear. Questions arrive, assume their actuality, and also disappear. In this hour, I shall cease to ask them, and silence shall be my answer. The world that your love created, that the heat has distorted, and that my mind is always misinterpreting, shall cease to interfere with our voices. The hand lies open. The heart is dumb. The soul that held my substance together like a hard gem in the hollow of its own power will one day totally give in. Although I see the stars, I no longer pretend to know them. Although I have walked in those woods, how can I claim to love them? One by one, I shall forget the names of individual things. You, who sleep in my breast, are not met with words. But in the emergence of life within life and of wisdom within wisdom, you are found in communion. Thou in me and I in thee and thou in them and they in me, dispossession within dispossession, dispassion within dispassion, emptiness within emptiness, freedom within freedom. I am alone. Thou art alone. 
the Father and I are one. Let's start now. Let's not wait till circumstances force us to see the value of moments like these of the persons that are in our paths and in our homes and in our workplaces in our stores and everywhere we go let's start letting the value of each moment and each person pull us in to themselves as one as Jesus and the Father are one as we can be one each and every moment with each and every person. Let's pray. Father, we humans have so many needs. And you know what our needs are before we ask them, but we're going to ask anyway. For our friend, Mina, we ask for healing, Lord, flat out. And while we're waiting for that healing, we ask for your presence to be absolutely and manifestly known by each one of us, and especially by her and Angelo and the girls and her whole family, so that they know that they know that they're being held. They know that they know that each moment that they're sharing is the only moment that they have. No matter how many are left, and no matter what they do in life, this moment that follows us around is the moment, the day that you have made, that we can rejoice and be glad in if we so desire, if we can be aware enough and present enough. So, Father, help us to be aware enough and present enough to rejoice and be glad in this moment with these people, whoever they are. And thank you for the amazing model that Nina has given us to be unsinkable, to be hopeful, to keep moving forward. And give us a way to be able to support her when she is feeling weak and weary and scared. And to do that for each other every day of our lives. Father, thank you for this time. We love you. And we realize we can only do that because you did it first. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.